welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore human behavior that will improve your relationships, your well-being, and your organization by helping you find your groove. From best-selling authors to researchers, you will learn insights from the sharpest minds in psychology, economics, and neuroscience. And in this episode, we combine them in a practice of leadership. Yes, we will, Tim. But before we get to our guest, we just need to give a shout out to some folks who have reviewed us recently in the last couple of weeks. We've had three, three, Tim, three three really nice reviews from (laughs) listeners in the United States and Germany, and we just want to thank them. We always appreciate hearing kind words from groovers. And at the same time, we like getting feedback on behavioral grooves. If you have a suggestion for a guest or you have an idea for a series or you think the show would be better off if we only talked about music. Wait, Tim, wait, Tim. What? What are you trying to do with the script here? What? What? What, what is this idea of like we only talk about music? Oh, Come did that on. get into the script? I, how did that happen? Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> you remember? Oh my gosh! So all right, I just so, thought so, you know maybe maybe I could slip it past you, but apparently apparently not. <laughs> just remember that grooves is only part of the title, it's, and 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 grooves has two different meanings. You get the musical side of this, yes, that musical rhythm, um, but it's also about creating habits and making life easier. It's not. Just a music podcast, Tim. How many times do I have to tell you? How many times? <laughs> All right, Roger that. Um, okay. okay, I think it's time we get on with our guest. Sandra <laughs> Sutcher is a professor of management practice at Harvard Business School and an internationally recognized researcher on trust. Now, Sandra studies how organizations become trusted and the vital role leaders play in that process. Her articles on trust have been featured as a big idea in hbr.org and as a must read by Harvard Business Review. Sandra was also a business executive for 20 years before joining Harvard. At Fidelity Investments, she measured customer loyalty, redesigned back office operations, and improved the quality of service. At Feline's Basement, she authored the proposal to go from a single-unit business to a national chain. She's a remarkable person with a fantastic career. Yeah, agreed, Kurt. And we were excited to speak with her about her new book, The Power of Trust, How Companies Build It, Lose It, and Regain It. The book is particularly applicable for business leaders as we continue to muddle through our way through the great resignation. So now it's time that we ask you to sit back with a big pour of leadership trust and enjoy our conversation with Sandra Sutcher. Sandra Sutcher, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Oh, thanks so much. We are glad to have you here. And and Kurt, are we? Who's going to get started in our speed round today? You're going to start with the first I'm one. I'm going to get Tim. started. This is so so fantastic. Okay, so Sandra, big question: Would you prefer coffee or tea? Oh, coffee. Oh, n- not love that not a hesitation. Outside of Boston, I would assume that might be the case, right? There you go. Okay. <laughs> but decaf, alarming. Decaf. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. We, we talked uh, a lot of people. Do you make your own coffee in the morning then? Is that like part of the routine? Yeah, I do. Yeah. 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 I've got one of these machines and it does things. And then I enjoy myself. Almond milk. Right. So, yes. Uh, all that. So. <laughs> Ooh, nice. <laughs> all right. All right, Sandra. How do you prefer your eggs? Scrambled or fried? Oh, scrambled. These are easy. Oh. Scrambled. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. You no, know, I've had some of these. It's like, what? What is that question? Right. So it's scrambled. Yes. No, no. <laughs> Well, this one might be a little bit disconnected. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite athlete or favorite musician? A musician. I don't have a favorite athlete. Well, actually, okay. Usain Bolt uh, actually is a favorite athlete, but I don't think he'd have dinner with me. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'd say musician, but most of the ones I want are actually dead. So I'm not sure how we're going to work that. Well, let's 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 just fantasize for just a minute, then, and, and we've got the ability to time warp. Who who do you think you might want to have dinner with? Uh, Aretha Franklin. Oh, oh yeah, R E S P E C T. Yeah, right. that's <laughs> what, I'm from Detroit, uh, and oh, there so, you go, Motown. Right. Exactly, yeah. exactly. All right, last speed round question: If I trust you to do X. Should I also trust you to do Y if X was activity something and Y is a different activity or something? No. One of the most important things that we found out in our research, which was a big surprise, uh, is that trust is limited. So when I trust, I trust Kurt to run a good interview. I'm not trusting you on any other dimension uh, because trust is one of these. It's like I'm trusting you to do X and, and trust works like that. It's one of the reassuring findings that we had because it means that it's not like uh, the glue that holds us all together. You know, trust mm-hmm. is actually quite contextual. It's uh, action specific and it's relational. Uh, and so in that regard, uh, it's easier to work on. If, if you care about those dimensions, then if you think it's this magic sauce that somehow makes everything work. Uh, and so when we did the research, uh, what we were after were those kinds of practical insights uh, into what trust is and how it works. And so a great question and absolutely no, Kurt. I don't trust you on any other dimension. I'm sure you're a great guy, but I don't. <laughs> well, I don't even know if you should trust me on doing a good interview because if you've listened to any of these shows, Tim is the guy you trust on that. I'm not. Um, but I, I love this idea that it's not this magical sauce. And when if you think about trust, then how, how do you apply it if it's not a magical sauce that solves everything? Are, are there ways that you can apply it that are going to be effective to help move, particularly in, inside of an organization, move things forward? Yeah. So, so the way you go after it is uh, you start with who are my stakeholders? In this case, who is the person or the group that I'm trying to get trust to trust me? Uh, and, and so trust is in the eye of the beholder. There's not some single standard that says even for the same situation that we all trust on the same dimensions. So first you have to start with who's the person who's doing the trusting and what matters to them. And then it is this question about what are they trusting me to do, right? And, you know, that can be in a whole number of things. If I'm inside an organization, I'm a boss and managing people. Uh, But those are also finite, right? It's not like there's an infinite number of things that I'm doing as a boss, you know? And and so, again, it's this notion of kind of narrowing it down to who's the person, what do they expect from me, what would make them trust me, what would help them trust me uh, in a particular set of domains, it, you talk about uh, in the in the book these four foundational elements of trust: competence, motives, means, and impact. Would you mind just kind of briefly walking through those? And and I'm kind of curious about are the, are, are do they need to be sequential? Do you kind of pose them in that particular way? And I'm I'm wondering is there a, a sequential value to uh, to them as well? Uh, so uh, so I would say the the important sequencing is the first part. 
So there is no trust without competence. Mm. Right. Competence is the foundation of trust. Uh, so as we were just saying, if I'm trusting Kurt to run a good interview, you, you know, if he's not good at that, you know, it's kind of game over uh, and I'm not even going to go further. And, and that's true. You know, so uh, so if you think about Uber, you know, a, a great example of competence, Uber gets me from point A to point B better than I ever could have done it before, not driving myself, and sometimes even better than I do if I drive myself. Uh, And so that's why competence matters. But then uh, not everyone's thrilled to use Uber, Mm. right? Some people have a kind of an aftertaste from some of what they learned about Uber when it was growing its business. Uh, and, And so that's how you get into the other two dimensions in the moral domain of motives and means, Uh, So motives are sort of why they do what they do. Uh, And we can't get inside people's heads or companies' heads, but we can see whose interests they protect, right? And so when I'm judging a company, when I'm assessing their motives, it's like, okay, who's on first, you know, and who's not? Uh, And so so there is this uh, uh, story from 2013 of an Uber driver who unfortunately kills a six-year-old girl. He runs into a family of four uh, on the streets of San Francisco, and he injures her mother and brother. Uh, The family sues. Uh, And when they do that at court, uh, Uber claims that the driver really wasn't an Uber driver. Uh, And the reason he wasn't an Uber driver was because he didn't have a passenger in his car and he hadn't accepted his next ride. So you say, well, whose interest does Uber protect? All that Uber seems to care about is Uber, right? In this situation, it's like, what about the poor family? What about the driver who they literally just threw under the bus and said, he's not even our employee at this time? So that's how that's why motives matter, <laughs> because we judge these, we assess companies based on actions like this, and we say, well, that's not good, right? Uh, uh, and means matter. So by means, uh, we basically mean how do companies uh, go about accomplishing their goals, right? And so, uh, so in largely, it's a question of fairness. Mm-hmm. So if there's one moral dimension that we want <laughs> from the people and organizations we rely on is that they're fair to us. Uh, And so a story from Uber in 2013 to 2015, uh, they instructed their drivers uh, to book and cancel drives on Lyft, their number Mm. one competitor in the U.S. They did this 5,000 times uh, over the space of 12 months. Uh, Okay, so if you say, is Uber fair? (laughs) Do they go... uh, after growing their business in a fair way, uh, you kind of go, well, not in this case, right? Not for sure uh, when they're doing that because the name of the game is ride hailing is showing up on time. Uh, And so if I'm going to throw a spanner in the works into your business, uh, that shows that I'm not going to be fair. So now we've got competence, we've got motives, we've got means. Uh, And the last part is impact. Uh, And impact, that was actually, I think if there's any contribution that we've made to Uh, my read, at least, of the literature on trust, it's that people at the end kind of judge you on the effect of your actions. And I don't mean the things that you claim you're doing. Uh, It's the things that I can see with my own eyes. uh, And they're the effects of the things that you do. Uh, And so it's kind of like the on the ground, I don't care what you tell me about your intentions. I want to see what your actions show. Uh, And so there's this, uh, in 2017, there was a female reliability engineer, a woman named Susan Fowler, 
uh, who published a blog post about what it was like uh, to work at Uber. Uh, And she recounted a horrifying set of uh, situations that made it clear that this was not a good environment for women to work in. And during the two years that she was there, women started out at 25% of the engineers in her division, and they ended up at 6%. Mm -hmm. So at a time when everyone is working reasonably hard to try to diversify their organizations, particularly in any of the STEM areas, uh, to have that. Now, Uber didn't set out to say, let's create a bad environment for women. So their intentions don't matter here. What matters is the impact of the policies, practices, and the way that they went about running the business. So those are the four dimensions. And what we think is that people evaluate based on all four of them. Competence is a kind of no-go zone, right? If you can't get beyond that, it's not going to work. And then the other three kind of add to or detract from the degree to which you're trusted. So, Sandra, on the, on the impact one, if, if I'm benevolent, if, I, if I'm trying my best, but I just don't do it, and maybe it's not necessarily I, I lack competence, but it, we, we got unlucky in this situation. I said I was going to get that paper to you on Friday. I got sick on Thursday. I was going to do everything. But the impact is still I didn't get that paper to you on Friday. Is there any forgiveness for the, those outstanding Uh, circumstances that come in and that I had the best intentions, but yet the impact wasn't there. How does that play out? Uh, So it plays out in two ways. Uh, I don't know how long you want me to answer. So I'll start with the first. (laughs) (laughs) And and the first is that uh, we actually judge an action differently if we think it was a, a problem of competence or integrity. Okay. Right. So for a competence error, you had a bad day. You know, all kinds of technical things went wrong. Interview wasn't so great because X, Y, and Z happened, storms outside, all of that. I'm going to say that's okay. You know, I get it. Everyone has a bad day. If I think for some reason that you set out to do that, you didn't Mm. like my book, you know, you decided, you know, we're going to ask some questions that's going to make her look dumb uh, or stupid or, you know, uh, biased in any one of a number of directions. That's an integrity problem, right? And then I'm not so forgiving. So, so the nature of the trust breach really matters. Uh, and, and, and we have a very different attitude toward whether it's a question of competence or integrity. That's fantastic, actually. I, I, I love that. Uh, I love the way, I love the way that you approach that. And I also love the way you you littered the book with these great business examples. As practitioners, uh, Kurt and I are always interested in, well, what are other companies doing and how do they approach this? And I loved uh, thank you for using the Uber examples because I love the way you walk through that in in the book using a specific company under all these different circumstances. You also gave a great example about Nokia and the kind of trust that was involved in laying people off. And and I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about that and what your thoughts were about how Nokia handled the layoffs. Yeah, so uh, so Tim, thank you for asking about this. You know, if I had to rank order like five companies that I admire at a particular point in time, uh, Nokia managing this this layoff is one of them. Uh, and so this was at the point in time when Nokia is being outcompeted by Apple uh, and Android phones, right? So its business, its phone business is going down. 
Uh, and so the, the leadership knew that they were going to have to do a very big restructuring, which is a polite way of saying a staff reduction. And it was going to take, they figured at the end, it was going to take about 18,000 people spread across 13 countries out of their jobs. So they had had a bad experience, which I won't go into, in, in a layoff that they uh, conducted in Bochum, Germany in 2008, uh, which was so expensive. And this, so just one small example of how bad it was, people started sending their phones back to Nokia. Mm. They were so ticked off, they closed a factory uh, in this town, in this city, uh, in Germany. And they ended up losing, they calculated something like uh, $800 million in lost sales, $100 million in profit, if they just compared what they would have made if they had just done the same as they did in France and Italy. Oh, mm. my gosh. So this was awesome in a really bad way. Uh, <laughs> and so their, their catchword uh, for the layoffs that they had to do was not another Bochum, right? <laughs> so yeah. then a lot of people actually learn how to be more trusted by being untrusted at first. Right. Uh, and so it seems to be a pattern that, OK, that really hurt me. What went wrong and what can I do differently next time? Uh, so what they decided under the leadership of a guy named Aho Esco, who uh, we need to check his name because uh, <laughs> it's a name. And I sometimes get like the first and last name switched. So I'll say it twice. <laughs> it will we'll make sure Aho. that it's in the show notes and we'll make sure that it's right in the show notes. So we'll double check that. All right. Okay. Uh, and so um, what they devised was a kind of a bet on trust. And they said, guess what? We think that if we can develop a support for laid off employees program that shows exactly how committed we are to helping them get new jobs, that we can count on them to stay on board, some for as many as like two years to help us through this restructuring. Mm. Uh, so they put together this elaborate program, uh, which I can describe pretty simply. There are five tasks that they help you get it through, which you help to get a new job. Uh, the first is you can, they help you get a new job at Nokia. They help you get a new job outside of Nokia. They give you money if it turns out that you have a project that you want to do, including starting a new business, and you can defend the business plan. Uh, they will support your education. It's a fourth path. And then they even have the fifth path. They said, ask us for something we haven't thought of. Uh, and so, and they then tailored this in 13 countries around the world through local leaders, all of whom were losing their jobs. Uh, and they managed this process internally. Uh, and what happened at the end of it is that everybody, everybody stayed uh, they ended up with the same percent of new revenues from new products that they always had, which is like 33%. Uh, and the amazing thing is that 60% of 18,000 people uh, knew their next step the day they left the firm. Mm. Now, I've started layoffs for a decade, and I've never seen results exactly like that. Uh, and so it really goes to show that if you approach people with a program based on trust, uh, that you can make some miraculous things happen. And just a, a small side note, they were smart enough to know that they were going to be prioritizing the interest of employees over that of Nokia during this period of time. And mm. so they asked for permission from the board of directors to take this approach. So they went to them before they implemented this program, before they announced it, uh, and they said, look, we're not going to move forward on this if you don't back this way of prioritizing interests. 
And the board said, we get it. We understand that we're behind you to do this because we think it's the right thing to do. And we think it'll help us anyway. So that, that's the Nokia story. It's a great example uh, of many things, not least of which is that uh, learning how to be trusted is a very creative act. You know, there's not like a big playbook for this that told <laughs> Nokia, you know, here's how to do a layoff that really is going to help people trust you for two years, knowing that their jobs are going to end. Yeah. Uh, and there are lots of ways that we think about innovating in business. And I just want to sort of mark that uh, learning how to be trusted is another space where this can happen. You bring up layoffs and I just it it brought back this experience my wife had where she had worked for a, a relatively small startup that grew, 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 did really well, expanded, became more obviously business process oriented. And then they kind of fell on some hard times and had a, a layoff. And, and I don't think they prioritized their employees and all of this goodwill that she had for the organization about their mission, about what they were trying to achieve, how she part laid that into it. It was pretty much gone the day after the the layoffs happened, actually even before that, just through the whole process because they didn't think it through. And I don't think they trusted. And I think layoffs in general probably have that probably more, at least, and you might have better uh, insight on this than almost any other type of management type of approach. I mean, have you seen that? And in general, are do companies do a good job on their layoff process? Or is Nokia just a, a outlier that is so far out there that that is a shining star and we should all be looking at that? And there's not other examples that we can we can look to. So there's a uh, so the, the first piece of advice I get when someone asks me, how can I be trusted more as a company by my employees is to stop laying them off or to stop having lousy layoffs. Right. Yeah. So, you know, there the people have been studying the effects of layoffs since the 1990s. Uh, and there are a number of effects that point to the fact that layoffs are a trust killer. Uh, and part of the reason why they work that way is that they don't just destroy trust, which they do for the people who are laid off. They destroy trust for the survivors. Uh, because now all of a sudden, the connection that I used to have between if I do a good job, I get to keep my job. That connection is broken. It's like your wife was doing a great job. Uh, and all of a sudden, she doesn't know what she can count on. Well, if they can just lay me off, you know, what's up with that? Uh, and so we find that it has an effect on whether people pay attention to quality, whether they pay attention to safety from a manufacturing environment. Uh, sales relationships suffer because people are just not so interested in going the extra mile for a client. Uh, people are less interested in coming on board to a company. Uh, there's less creativity because people are afraid to advance new ideas because they're not sure how they're going to be. And, and so, you know, this is one of those best, you know, common practices. It continues to just be so damaging, you know, and among the things that I've tried to do in my work is to just illustrate exactly how bad this is and what can be done differently. Because the, the usual, the punchline is, well, so give me a better example. And that's why we go and study places like Nokia or Michelin that we write about in the book and other companies that we've looked at. God, the ripple effects are just huge. I, I mean, it's, I mean the, the, the list that you just rattled off, I, we, we do a lot of uh, work with companies who are, uh, who are trying to deal with the chaos of the pandemic. And psychological safety is an important part of it. 
but it seems like trust is really central, <laughs> really central to psychological safety. And, and so, uh, right, I mean, uh, companies are struggling with that these days. Yeah, no, and uh, Amy Edmondson's work on that, you know, is just remarkable. Uh, and she, you know, she's the one who has pointed us all to understand exactly how important it is for us to take risks mm-hmm. in order for organizations to be effective. Uh, and so what happens when people don't trust you? They stop taking risks. Yeah. yeah, And when that happens, all the stuff that we want to have occur in companies like innovation, uh, doing new things, doing the things we do well, all of that starts to fall off a log. And the flow of it, good information coming from inside the organization up gets absolutely stopped. And that's part of why companies get into so much trouble is they stop losing. They just don't know how bad things are at the production mm. among the people who are doing the work. Uh, and part of why this has been so hard to study is that the effects, as you just said, are spread all over the place. So I describe yeah. things that affected new product development, sales, manufacturing quality, talent wow. management. And so wow. no one sits back and says, well, let's see what pattern I can do if I assemble data from all of those processes. Yeah. Right? And so that's why it's very hard for companies to understand how damaging it is, is because it's spread across the organization and each area may end up sort of seeing it in fact, but no one is kind of connecting the dots to the root cause, uh, which yeah. is how people are either being treated or whether they trust or not. So I have a two-part question. And one is just looking back over whatever history time you want to look at, how much has the landscape of trust changed? I mean, particularly as we think about organizations, are they gaining trust more? Are they losing trust in general? What is that landscape looking like? And then the part two of this is, have you done any research or, or seen any research about the pandemic and the effect that the pandemic has had on that trust, particularly as I look out and you hear things about the great resignation and all of these factors that are coming into play as we're kind of trying to get out as we do this at the, you know, mid part of March or um, August, excuse me, you know, where are we in that? Right. Uh, So to answer your first question, uh, one of the more reliable sources for information on trust and uh, how business is doing uh, uh, is the Edelman Trust Barometer. So Edelman is a, uh, is a PR firm uh, who has made studying trust kind of the core of what it is that they do as a service, honestly, to the rest of us. And then they build their consulting practices around it. Uh, and, there, and so they have been studying trust in four institutions for 20 years. Uh, they've mm-hmm. been studying trust in business, in government, in the media, and in NGOs. And every year they do this study across, you know, 30x countries around the world with statistically valid samples from each country of people who were uh, both kind of informed users of the media and people who are just part of the general public. So that's just a a long description of what Edelman is, what they do. So uh, the 2021 Edelman Trust Barometer, for the first time ever, honestly, uh, business was seen as the most trusted institution among those four. Now, that's a number like 61% compared to 57 or 54% in the other three institutions. So we're not looking at vast differences. I'm just trying to level set this. Uh, mm. But nonetheless, 
uh, it is uh, striking that that has occurred. I, and part of if you've tra- followed their research, it would appear that two things have influenced that. One is that business is really increasingly expected to pay attention to social issues that mm-hmm. used to be the domain of government uh, and NGOs. And so over the last you know, X number of years, probably five or six, the expectations of businesses keep getting ratcheted up as to the interest that they are expected now to pay attention to. Some of that is a factor of uh, a function of climate change, where we have a great example of something we know no one of us can solve alone. And we know that businesses can play a really important role in solving that because they're part of the problem, uh, honestly, to start with. And they make decisions that affect that. Uh, I think the pandemic has worked that way as well. Mm. All right, so, so this is an example of a, a kind of a, a trust challenge that's due to external events. So you can't point to anyone and say, well, it's your fault, uh, you know, that we have this pandemic. Uh, what you can say is this is now a condition that we all have to live with. And it turns out that companies have done a pretty good job of showing resilience, ability to change Uh, and to move into this space. Now, some of their early actions have not been good. And I would say that the extent of layoffs that companies took uh, as a result of COVID uh, actually were hugely damaging throughout the workforce around the world, right? Uh, And certainly here in the United States. Uh, But I think on the other hand, if you continued to stay employed, uh, you had a sense that at least there, there was some certainty in a life where things looked very uncertain, Uh, And it allowed people to start to look at companies, I think, in somewhat of a new light. So I I think that that's part of it. But I just want to underscore one other point here, which is if business is trusted by 61% of the people who evaluate it, it means it's not trusted by 39%. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I can think of no other dimension in business where we get together and we say, good news, 60% 60% of people you know, think that our products are great, you know, or think that our customer service is outstanding or really appreciate the quality of what we do. Uh, and so, you know, I always have a kind of an edge around, you know, how excited should we get about 61%? And so it's better than it used to be, which is in the 40 to 50% range, but it is nothing to write home about. So business, we have a lot of work to do, uh, mm-hmm. I think is what I'm saying, to kind of make up uh, why it is that 40% of people still don't find us particularly reliable. That It is interesting to, to think about the growth of business becoming more trustworthy than government. We talked to Christina Bicchieri at the University of Pennsylvania uh, a couple of months ago, who said that there was a, a correlation between uh, vaccination hesitancy and trust in government. And I wonder if there's an opportunity for businesses to step up and, and to try to fill that void. Tim, that's definitely true. And and you will find uh, accounts in newspapers of companies which have made themselves testing sites, have made themselves Mm -hmm. vaccinated sites. Uh, And I think if there's one super practical thing that any business could be, uh, it's try to find a way that you can be the place so people don't have to leave work uh, in order to get vaccinated or now as we're being advised uh, to get your booster. So do you want to have everyone leave work or do you want to try to figure out, is there some way that you can put in place all the protocols that are necessary to do that well? Uh, So I I feel like that's an opportunity for business. Uh, I also do think that with respect to COVID, uh, that I'm trying to think how to say this, that 
that I, I think that there's a kind of a trust recovery process that businesses need to go through. So regardless of how well we feel about them, I do feel like all businesses have had to make tough calls. Mm. And even for all the people who are still inside the business, uh, you still have to kind of say, look, we did some things and here's why we did what we did. Here's how we think about managing in the face of what now appears to be a stream of pandemics uh, and give people a chance to get to know them. Uh, I also feel that if I were inside a company right now, uh, I'd ask all the first line managers of any group uh, to have a conversation with their employees. And it would go something like this. Uh, The first question has been, what has COVID been like for you? Mm. What has been your experience in your family? Uh, of living through COVID, just to understand where people are coming from. And then I'd ask them to ask, you know, what grade would you give us for Hmm. how we've been managing COVID? You know, what have we done well, what not so well, and give us some feedback. Uh, And then a last question might be something like, let's think, what's one challenge, the biggest challenge that you face with respect to COVID that we might be able to help you with? And I feel like if if managers had those conversations uh, with their employees, we'd know a whole lot more about how to manage during this process. Uh, Because I don't know about you, but my read of what's going on is that it looks like this is not something that's going to retreat in the way that we had hoped. Uh, I think we'll be living with some version of pandemics in waves uh, forever at this point, it looks like. Uh, And even if it turns out not to be true in the long run, I think for the foreseeable future, it's true. And so I think we need to get much more information and close to our employees to figure out how to manage during this time. And I worry that people's surveys of, would you want to be in office or out of office and all that sort that they're important, but they don't cover these really personal dimensions, which I think is going to be involved in helping people feel more supported. Well, I'm to, to follow up on this idea, I'm just kind of curious about the how trust plays into the way some companies are saying in order for you to return to the office, you have to be vaccinated. Uh, uh, and and other companies are saying, we don't really care. We don't care if you wear masks. We don't care if you're vaccinated. Come back to work. Doesn't matter. What are the trust implications to those kinds of decisions, do you think, Sandra? Yeah, so, so those are moral questions. Companies have responsibility for the people who interact in their sphere. You know, they have that for their employees. They have that for the customers who have contact with their business. And so I don't think it's ever a good idea for a business to shirk from its moral responsibilities. Mm. Uh, It's part of why motives and means matter, why fairness matters. And if I'm an employee and I get COVID because nobody here was masked uh, or people weren't required to be vaccinated, then I'm going to really, you think I'm not trusting now? You know, try seeing what I'm going to be like if that takes place. Uh, and so I think there's been a funny discussion where people have over-indexed on the rights of people to not have something interfere with their freedom uh, mm-hmm. compared to the duties that we have to each other uh, and to create safe environments. And I think in this case, duty trumps rights. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, I've heard stories, excellent stories of Uh, senior leaders who have said about senior leaders, well, if you're not willing to get vaccinated, then you can't come into the office in person. So you can continue doing life from home and you can be in Zoom, uh, but you can't come to our quarterly meetings. You can't come to the dinners where we have where we talk about strategy. 
uh, because you'll be putting other people at risk. Uh, and so when I heard someone describe this conversation that someone had, I thought, well, that's like a good way to handle that. So it's not like you, I'm going to fire you. Uh, it's more you're making a choice and there are consequences from that choice. Uh, and the, here's what the consequences look like. And then I think people actually have more information on which to make decisions. You know, like, am I comfortable with the Zoom world when everyone else is in person for a while? Yeah. What's that going to be like? And so I feel like there are definitely ways to move ourselves through this. Uh, but I think that the strong anchor here is around trust and understanding that you have a moral obligation uh, to be fair to people. And part of being fair is and the impact that you have is to not expose them to illness that you know they would be exposed to under certain conditions. It sounds like a lot of what you're talking about here is is opening up a two-way dialogue with the organization and the employees so that it's not a one-way here's what here's the decision and just go and now you need to to implement but there's a there's a two-way communication piece is that is, would that be uh, something that you would agree with yeah, Kurt, that's a very good uh, uh, pickup. So uh, part of the, uh, the organizational literature on fairness uh, is there's a, a kind of uh, what's called procedural fairness. Mm -hmm. uh, and that just has to do not just with sort of whether I'm distributing pay and promotions. This is sort of what processes do I use to run my business? And one of the most important dimensions, it's called the voice effect, uh, is whether or not I give people a chance to have a role in decisions that affect them. Mm. Some say, at least, uh, in what's going on. Uh, and this came out of research uh, in the legal domain where what they found was that people were actually okay with judgments that didn't go their way if they felt that the process of the trial was fair, ah. if they thought people took enough time, if the accurate information from their standpoint was presented, where they thought that people actually did a good job, uh, and where this, and so then they, then they were not happy, but they could live with the effects of a judgment that went against them. Uh, yeah. And so this, is, this was the research that actually started people thinking about this procedural justice and how it is that sometimes we think outcomes are the only thing that matters. You know, yeah. did I win the case or not? And this is an example where, no, you know what, if I, if I can understand and feel I'm well represented in this process, <laughs> uh, then I can be okay with the result. So a quick, yeah. quick follow-up on that. We do a lot of work with companies, and oftentimes they're doing employee surveys or qualitative interviews where they gather input and then in many companies, uh, they do a really good job of saying, all right, thank you. Here's what we heard and here's what we're doing about it. But in other companies, they it's, it goes months and there's crickets and they're not hearing anything. Is there anything from a trust perspective? Is it better not to ask any, anything at all? Or is it better than, than to ask and then have nothing happen from it? I mean, I don't know if you have any insight in that. So I, I think that if you ask me a question which affects my interest, uh, then I expect to hear back what you made of the information you asked me for, right? This is in the domains of, of motives, right? Yeah. And so whose interest are you protecting? You say that you're doing this to find out how I'm feeling, 
Yeah. And so I want to know, like, what's the result? You know, what are you going to do as a result? And that's part of how you would demonstrate that uh, as a stakeholder that I matter to you uh, and that you've heard me. So I think the notion that this goes into the organizational black box out of which it never emerges, that's just not a good practice because people, you've erased an expectation that you care about people and then you're disappointing it when you don't give them anything back. We're recording this in August of 2021, and uh, you have recently been working on uh, sort of summarizing what it is to be a good company. And uh, I was wondering if you could share some of your thoughts on that. So, yeah. So, Tim, we, uh, uh, my co-author and uh, co-researcher on all of this work, a woman named Shalene Gupta, who is just a brilliant researcher and novelist and writer and journalist in her, on her own behalf uh, and works as a research associate at Harvard Business School. Uh, we recently wrote an article that was uh, published in Working Knowledge. It's, it's an HBS uh, vehicle and also on LinkedIn. Uh, and the article uh, is called uh, something to the effect of how to be a good place to be from. Uh, and, and what this is about is there's a company that we study called Recruit Holdings in Japan. Uh, and Recruit, for a variety of reasons, uh, notably uh, had a, an a awful scandal that emerged in the late 1980s, uh, where its CEO uh, basically showed, sold shares of an unlisted subsidiary to mm. important people in government and business. And this got reported on as insider trading uh, by Japanese media, and it caused a firestorm such that the prime minister of Japan and his entire cabinet had to resign. So if you talk about trust scandals, this is about as big as it gets. That's the only one we've ever heard of that goes up this high, uh, starting in a business. I'm sure there are probably are others. Uh, and so what Recruit then obviously didn't have the resources that it ordinarily would have as a well-capitalized business to guarantee Japanese people who work for them uh, lifelong employment. And they said, okay, you know, we don't know what the future is going to hold for us. Uh, and so they started to build on some things they'd done before about practices that made it, instead of being come work at Recruit, we're great and you'll be with us forever, it's work at Recruit and you will leave more marketable than you were before. Mm. Uh, and so what they said is that we can't offer you employment life for a lifetime. We can offer you lifetime employability. Ah. Uh, and so that the key shift that we were interested in as an idea to share, uh, which is that we know that the days are gone when people spend all of their life in a given organization. Uh, and so most people are actually trying to figure out what can I get out of this particular period of time that I'm spending in this place. Uh, and so they have some best practices that we wrote about in the article, and I'll just talk about a few of them. Uh, one is that they realize that people actually care a lot, and this is especially true of millennial uh, and the generations that follow, uh, about their work mattering to society. Hmm. And so Recruit has always actually positioned the work that it does uh, in this way, even when they create like a matching platform uh, so you can book getting your hair done <laughs> at a salon. The way that that started uh, was one of the employees met a woman who said, well, I'm going to have to quit my job because I can't be in the salon all the time because I have to take care of my kids. And he asked, well, why do you have to be in the salon all the time? And she said, because I have no way of knowing when people are coming. 
Uh, and so this recruit executive said, well, we, we should be able to fix that problem. That's like a matching platform problem. That's what they do. Uh, and so they created this way for you to book hair appointments. So she gets to stay at home with her kids when she's not needed at the salon. And she comes back when she is. Uh, and so multiply that out. So they now have 50,000 employees worldwide uh, with people who are doing this. They actually own Glassdoor and Indeed. Uh, and so they're deeply invested in the job search space. Mm. Uh, and so, so one of their practices was this notion of tying the work that you do uh, to the effects that it has on society. Uh, another is that when, they, when you're evaluated, you're evaluated twice a year. Every six months, they sit down with you and they ask you to look at two time frames. Time frame one is the next six months and time frame two is the next three years. Hmm. They say, what would you like to be working on? During that period of time, what skills do you want to be developing? What interests do you want to pursue? And that the job of managers uh, is to help you manage both in the short term and the long term to build the kind of capabilities that you're looking to grow. Uh, they match that with a management principle, which is to try to give the most junior people they can the most responsibility that they can. So what they say is, we're going to give this job to Sandra. She doesn't know too much about it, but she is. they bet on passion. Uh, and they say, and, and then when I come up to them and I say, well, I don't know, what should I do about X? They always turn back and they say, well, what, what do you think you should do? Mm. Uh, which is hugely frustrating, but hugely developmental. Right? And so what they've created is a way of being a business uh, where you are developed all the time and all the interactions that you have. It's very impressive. But what I've just described, that's not particularly Japanese. Right? These are things that any business could start doing uh, or continue doing and just kind of amplify if it's already in their skill set. Yeah. Sandra, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thanks for the insights. You know, I, I, I need to learn how to trust Tim uh, and to get names right and everything else. But beyond that, this uh, just thank you. I, th we, we appreciate you being here and uh, so much. Oh, great. Well, thank you. You guys are great to talk with. Honestly, yeah. You, after that story I told you, you know that I have comparisons, right? And so, <laughs> and so well, thank not you. only have you pressed the bar, you know, you've said, a, no, honestly, this was a great discussion. I really, really enjoyed it. So thanks. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Sandra have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our trust fall brains. Oh, trust. Wow. Did you ever did you ever do a trust fall, Tim? I did. I did. You know, back fall. when no. you like stand up on that ledge and you you fall backwards into into your uh oh. co-workers. No, not yeah. like that. Not no? like that. I just did it standing and standing on the floor with everybody around me. No, yeah. well, that doesn't you can't hurt yourself really that way. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't, but you still, I mean, it's a, a lesser amount of trust, but it's a lesser amount of risk too. Yeah, so, well, I used to do, I used to do a bunch of team building programs. And one of the things that we always would do, not always, we often would do was a trust fall and we'd have a set of scaffolding that's up six or eight feet or a ladder and you gather people around and you work through this process. And it's amazing to me that uh, the difference that people have in in how they approach this, right? For some people, uh, no big deal. They get up there, they look, they go, "Okay, oh, I, I trust these guys. I'm going to fall back." And and others, it's they're, I mean, literally 
shaking and and you know i mean to a point of this is this is painful and it's crazy to see that happening and and to see that going on and and sandra's conversation with us i thought was really interesting because i'm going wow there's there's a component of that that these yes companies have to build trust and i don't think you can do it through building trust falls or doing trust falls but man you know if you can have that trust in your coworkers and in with the company just how much improvement that has that's that's pretty cool and while that's part and parcel to psychological safety, I'm I'm curious, Kurt. Did you ever see? I'm sure that there were people who just said they wouldn't do it. I, I yeah. would expect that there were some folks who just said no. But uh, do you think that there's a correlation in in trust and in in the trust fall scenario specifically, and the um, personalities of those people? Do you think risk taking had anything to do with it, or or I'm their sure. willingness to be a trustworthy you know companion? Yeah, I'm sure there I'm sure there is. Actually, what amazed me is we always offered an out. And I think sometimes the the harder thing than actually falling was being the person who first said no, that I'm not going to do this. And we 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 made them choose. That was part of the the whole trust fall thing is is you know, say your name, uh, I Kurt Nelson choose to do this. Or I Kurt Nelson choose not to do this. And for those people who, you know, the the group norm, that social pressure is to do it, is to get up there and do it. And I think it took a lot of courage for some people to say no. And that whole piece, I think, is gets into the trust that they have with their with their coworkers and and it other does. pieces of it, right? Yeah. How how well do they know and trust that they're not going to be ostracized because they were the one who didn't do it and who didn't go go forward with this and are they going to feel foolish it goes back to that psychological safety to show up who you are and to 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 go as far as you want to go that being said i do think there's probably some personality pieces in this and risk taking and you know i mean some people had some real concerns i mean there were big guys that were up there that are going I don't know. Can these guys support me? Am I going to hurt them if I fall on them? And there's others are, who had, 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 you know, fear of heights and even six feet up is, is a long way. Actually, it's a, when you're looking, when you're standing up on top of that platform and you're looking down, because I was up there almost every time with people, it's a long way to look. Right. Yeah, and so, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So. Because the platform is six feet high, but if you're, let's say five feet tall, you're actually, your eyes are at 11 feet. Yeah. So it feels a lot different than just being at six feet. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, wh- tell us, uh, tell me about what your thoughts are about the four foundational elements of trust from, from our discussion with Sandra. Uh, well, you know, it was, it's good. I, I think there's an element here that, that idea of competence, motives, means, impact, it's, it's a way, it's a nice, very practical way of, of looking at this. And then you mm-hmm. can do a diagnostic to say, all right, so do we have the competence to be able to, to, to do this? You know, are, are people competent enough in their jobs? Are we competent enough in what we deliver so that we build that trust at, at that level? You know, then you have motives and means. Are you being able to, to do that? And then the impact, right? So I think it's all, I think it's all there. I think it's a great rubric, right? It's a great model, you know, a screen to sort of overlay. Uh, and I think that it's really cool. It struck me uh, recently that I saw 
this morning, we're recording this right before Thanksgiving uh, in the United States here, uh, 2021. And Target Corporation just announced that they're going to close stores on Thanksgiving for everybody, ev- ev- for forever also. Yeah. So uh, as, as kind of a respect. And I thought, well, that's a step, you know, in kind of saying the corporation making a stand to say our our motives, right? I, I think um, I think Sandra would say that we can't get into the company's head, but we can see whose interest they're protecting. And mm-hmm. in this case, it looks like this action of closing the stores on Thanksgiving Day is an act of um, showing some interest in the employees. I think that's a really good insight, Tim. When you think about like the idea that hey, we're closing this, we're losing money, opportunity to earn sales at this point because we value the family life of our our team members, of of people who work here at Target. I think that's a really great, great point. And I wonder, you know, long-term what that means, particularly in this day of the great resignation and various different other things where people uh, have such uh, easy ability to say, I don't want to work here because everybody's looking for competent workers. And so I can move across town, across the country or to a different company in lickety split and probably earn more and other things. And so if you are building that trust with your employees and showing them that your, your uh, life is important to us, not just what you can do for us, that has to have a positive value in my, my perspective. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. I I really like that that Sandra just said that companies basically need to take their moral responsibilities to not shirk their moral responsibilities and stand up and say this is what I believe in, and that what Target Corporation was is doing is saying we to however small a degree you know mm-hmm. it's it's fair to be critical and to have a dialogue about how, why they're not doing more, but it's also fair to at least recognize that one step as a step. Yeah. Uh, of, of saying we value our employees. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. So what about competence versus integrity, Tim? What do you think about that? So I I like this. I really thought that this was a, a great thing when it com- comes to trust, that she separates out this idea that if you have a bad day and things get fouled up, that, that that's a competence issue and that's forgivable. But if you have a, a, you know, a bad day because, or if, you, if things get fouled up because that's kind of your intent, you know, that, that that's an integrity issue. And, and that she said is kind of not forgivable basically. And I, I I thought that that's a good way of thinking about not every break of trust is, is unforgivable, right? That there are, there are some things that are forgivable. Right. And I go back to our conversation with John Levy, right? And he had the idea of competence, honesty, integrity, and benevolence. Right. And he was talking about benevolence in this idea as opposed to integrity. He said even honesty, integrity can be sometimes forgiven if it's, for instance, I'm lying to you because we're going to a birthday party, a surprise birthday party, and I have lied to you. That is that is with a good intent, even though I'm not honest. It's not just the competency that can be forgiven, but sometimes even honesty can be forgiven if it is for a good intent. And I think that's where... Sandra was going, right? It's the, you know, I set out to foul things up is her idea of integrity, right? Yeah. And that's not. So if I set out to to screw you over, then that is unforgivable. And I think that would fall into the benevolence piece that that John talked about. And I always go back, and again, I think I talked about this in our conversation with John, 
again, I'll go back to team building, right? So we did the, yeah, used to do these team building programs and one was the electronic maze. And it's basically these teams have to find this way through a carpet that has 56 squares, looks like a checkerboard. Some of the squares beep when they stand on them, some of them don't. And I, my role as facilitator is I, I go through and I do the, you know, the rules. And then I, then I say, oh no, that's beep. You need to get off and all these other things. And at some point I would be helping out the teams and I'd start and I point at, at, at a square and then they'd go and I point at another square and they'd go. And then I would choose and I would point at a square that would beep, which was a bad thing. And when I did that, I would, I would laugh. I would do a little, <laughs> and from that moment on, they would never trust me. And it was partly because of the laugh. It was partly because, you know, I misled them, right? Mm-hmm. And there was obviously this this intent that I had purposely done it with the with the laugh. And and subsequent to that, what was really interesting is I always pointed at the right right square. I never would mislead them after that. And I've never, not once in probably hundreds of times doing that that event, did I ever have somebody listen to me afterwards. So yeah, yeah, because because it wasn't a competence thing. It was an integrity thing at that point for them. It wasn't it was it was thing. perceived as as non-forgivable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, one of the questions, and I don't know if this is answerable, but if we have a, a, a general sense of fundamental attribution error, if mm-hmm. if we have this bias, how difficult is it for us to to see competence or incompetence over integrity. I mean, how how often are, are we going to be willing to just look at someone who fouled up and say, "Well, that's a, you know that's an integrity issue. That's that's not forgivable." When in fact, it may have been they're just having a bad day. You yeah. know, the, the the driver that cuts that cuts me off on the on the interstate. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They did they did that purposely. They were trying to to mess with me as opposed to there was a fly in the car or some other <laughs> right. outside component. I think it's hard. I mean, we have that natural tendency to attribute blame and intent on other people when in fact that isn't always the case. So, yeah. Okay. What did you think about this, uh, this tip that she gave about uh, for companies to become more trusted, they should just stop people. They should stop laying people off. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's interesting. It's, it's a, I don't know if companies can. I think there's there's financial pressures and various different things. What I loved is her conversation about Nokia and the way that they did it, the the yeah. right way of doing that, right? And thinking through all of the steps that are necessary. And if you're going to do it, be as transparent, help them find, you know, really work with them. Again, it goes back to what you just talked about with Target and, and who's benefiting from this, right? And so... Right now, when you lay somebody off, the benefit is always with the company. It's never with the with the person. Yeah. So, how can you change that that cost value? Right? How, how do you how do you bring some value to the person who is being laid off? And and yet, I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can yeah. fully ever replace that. But as much as you can mitigate that, the better you're going to be. So, yeah, agreed. And I love, you know, the other thing that she said about that, that I thought was really interesting is, is it's not just with those folks who are laid off that you lose the trust. It's with the folks who are remaining mm-hmm. and that she talked about how that Im- impacts how, where employees pay attention to quality, to safety, sales, recruitment, creativity, all of those factors that come in. And I thought that was really insightful. And so 
you know, the, the impact of a layoff isn't just with the people who are being impacted by being laid off, but it, it impacts everybody in the organization and creates that lack of trust that impacts a whole number of other factors. So. Yeah, I, I, I've seen this with companies uh, time and time again uh, in uh, over the last 20 years of organizations that felt like they that they observe the problem as uh, our cost of human capital of, of employees is too high. So we have to reduce that. And we and they see it, they always frame it as two options. We could reduce wages or we can lay people off. Yeah. And, you know, they just they're pretty convinced that reducing wages is just a bad option. So laying off, you know, people to offset that cost is is better. And yet you hear these stories of companies that have built up this trust because their plant burned down and and they still paid everybody while they were being, you know, while they were rebuilding the plant and nobody's working or the companies during the pandemic that for that first part when they were shut down and yet they still paid employees and had them think about different ways of working and contributing. And by doing that, as opposed to just that immediate gut reaction of saying, we're not having revenue, the appropriate revenue cost benefit ratio. And so we need to lay these people off is be creative. Think about different ways that you can operate this. And again, give people different abilities to say, I will take a wage cut. I will take reduced hours. I will do something else to kind of inform that. And I think those are the companies that that are in the long run are going to have a much better um, impact on that. Yeah. I also liked, and this wasn't a, really a central theme in what Sandra had to say, but she talked about uh, helping people grow. Mm. She talked about the idea of um, matching, uh, you know, talking, getting management involved in working with junior people about things that they could take responsibility in or take opportunities to lead or take some risks. Uh, I think she gave the example of um, well, what would you do? You know, when, mm-hmm. when the junior person comes to the senior person and says, well, I'm not sure how, what, what, what we should do here. What do you think? And then the more senior person comes back and says, well, what would you do? Yeah. And she said, well, it might be inefficient in the short run. It's highly de- developmental. And of course, of course, it creates trust. And I really love this idea because to me, it also felt like it's not just about developing people to be managers. It's developing people for who they are as individual contributors. Yeah. There's a lot more individual contributors at any company. So why not help develop them in their skill set, doing the job that they're doing and worry less about how to get them to becoming a manager? I, I still remember probably the best manager I ever had. I didn't I haven't had that many because I left corporate America five years in after being in inducted and maybe six years after being kind of inducted and went off on my own. So I haven't had that many managers, but um poisoned by corporate America. Yeah, there you go. But I had I had one and and it was just exactly as you said. I remember the very first time I was probably 26, 27 years old, and I went into him and I said, here's the issue. And instead, you know, I was waiting for him to tell me what to do. And instead he said, well, what do you think we should do? And he said, you know, go think about that and then come back to me um, with your ideas. And what that did is it started me thinking like every time I went in to see Steve, I was I had to come in with like, here are the, the options that we can do. Here are the two to three different things and how we can handle this. And that process of just doing that, 
I think made me look at situations differently. And for many of those situations, then I didn't even go in because I, I now had identified these two options. This one obviously weighed better than this. So I'm just going to go ahead and do that because it, it I don't need to, to, to run that by, or sometimes I would just run it by, but say, I think we ought to do X and just to get the blessing. And that would be, that would be great. And that's usually what happened. So that's cool. Yeah. All right. With that, let's wrap up our grooving session on Sandra and say thanks once again for sharing her insights with us. Businesses may be getting better as time goes on, but they have a long, long way to go uh, at becoming more trustworthy. What do you say, Tim? I, I would agree. Sadly, I would agree. There's a long, long road to hoe there. But Sandra's model of competence, means, motive, and impact can be a powerful overlay for any leader that wants to improve their organization or their team or their business practices and to ask themselves, well, how well they're doing on these fronts to really take an honest assessment, I think could be really powerful. Yeah. And I don't want to forget that the big difference between competence and integrity or benevolence, as we talked about with John Levy, uh, that's a key piece of this. And so understanding, you know, you, if you point out a wrong square, don't laugh. That's that's for definite damn sure, right? Yeah. And just make sure that you're 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 doing things with this intent that, hey, we can make mistakes, but let's not purposely put throw people under the bus and and, and be bad about that. And yeah. what a company does can be just as important as why a company does it, and we need to realize that that's that's a big thing. So with that, we want to say thank you for listening to another episode of Behavior Grooves. And we hope that our discussion with Sandra helps you go out this week and find your groove.